Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me, as this week we're going to be speaking with Gary Moore. Now, Gary served Christchurch as the mayor for three terms, so we obviously talk about that, but we also dive back into his early childhood to find out about growing up in Palmerston North and some of the key influences on shaping who he's become. This is one of those really wide-ranging, eclectic, and diverse conversations, because we touch on so many different topics. This is why I do the podcast, actually, between you and me. It's because I get to have conversations with amazing, inspiring people who have really embraced and are living life. I do hope you enjoy this. And if you do, don't forget that there's more than 260 other interviews in the back catalog. So why not check those out as well? And there's information about the podcast at theseeds.nz. And in the show notes, I've put a link to the website for the Tuesday Club, which is an initiative that we talk about in the show. So check that out and sign up to their newsletter because it's full of interesting information. Now let's dive into this conversation with Gary. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Gary Moore to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I know we're going to have a conversation which probably touches multiple topics yep. because uh, I know um, you've got your Tuesday Club and you get really interesting people coming along to share different perspectives. Um, and you yourself have been involved in multiple things over the years. But what I'd like to do is go back in a time machine with people and find out a little bit about their history. So in your case, could we go right back to when you were, say, four or five years old? Where were you living and what was life like? I grew up in Palmerston North. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in an absolutely typical Irish Catholic family. Um, my, um, I, I went to Catholic schools all my way through. Um, and in fact, um, uh, I was in such a um, pathologically uh, Catholic family that when I married a Protestant, my mother didn't come to the wedding. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, um, but I, we, we were sort of just, in those days, the Catholic Church was incredibly powerful within families, and um, our whole life revolved around the parish, and, and, and it was very much an Irish Catholic community, mm. uh, even though we had lots of Dutch people, and that the, the, the community was... Irish, you know, most of us, like my two grandfathers and my mother all called Pat, you know, sort of, <laughs> they weren't noted for using a lot of names. And um, and so I, yeah, I grew up there in a very stable New Zealand family. Mum and dad had both experienced um, hard times during the Depression. Mum -hmm. had... Um, uh, been in Napier and Hastings rather at the time of the Napier earthquake. Dad's father had been killed in a work gang in 1935, and so that had sort of made them quite conservative in many ways. Mm. Um, so when I became quite a liberal, they found that pretty hard to cope with. Right. And what era are we talking about? Which sort of decade? Are so you, are I was born in 1951. Mm -hmm. So this is through the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. And I started working in 1969 in right. accountant's offices. Yeah. I studied 
at night and worked by day in accountants' offices. Yeah. So just still centering on your childhood, then um, it sounds like the church played a huge role. What yep. what types of things were your parents involved in? And oh yeah. well. Um, all the normal things. Um, mm-hmm. My parents' dad was always chairman of the school board. Um, uh, I can remember the um, the fathers uh, um, digging the school swimming pool at St Pat's Primary School in Palmerston North, and, and right. um, that was how things were done then. Um, I was an altar boy, um, and I was in the school in the church choir and all that sort of thing. You know, you just mm-hmm. did what was expected of you. Mm. Uh, I, and I used to always enjoy the choir because I could nick some of Dad's smokes and have them with Roy Cronin outside afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so there were advantages. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what do you think those influences, I guess, had on you at a young age? You know, the church was such a big part of your life and a big part of your, your family. I... Um, I, I always say that my activism and my liberalism came out of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, my mind's moved into other places now, but I was um, I was an activist because of that teaching. The um, I always found the New Testament a whole lot more interesting than the Old Testament, and. Um, I became involved in the Young Christian Workers, which was the Catholic Youth Movement, mm-hmm. and um, put a lot of effort into that. Dad used to call us the Young Catholic Talkers, and um, and that formed that you know the liberation theology and all that stuff that was exciting stuff in South America, um, and yes, yeah, so I you know I got involved in in um, Student politics. Um, I moved on. I, I I then shifted to Christchurch and ended up national president of the Tech Students Association. Um, and at the same time, sort of engaged in activism and a whole lot of fronts. Which, as mm. you said at the start, I've been involved in a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, I've always been deeply suspicious of institutions, including mm. churches, mm-hmm. where people abuse power. Um, and I've always been on the edge of knocking the institution for being useless, but within the institution trying to change it. Mm. I did that for years in the Catholic Church and gave up eventually. Um, and uh, I, I've done it with every area that I've worked in. Mm. It's interesting to me always to try to work out the shaping that happens in a life you know what were the earliest influences and things and it, I, I can actually see that link between the church and and going on and particularly if you are listening out for some of those proverbs and some of those stories parables mm. you know like uh the samaritan um you know crossing the road and and who's going to help this person who's in need one of and, my favorite Parables, is it? Yeah, oh, absolutely, it's fantastic. But you'll find that in every um, religious teaching. Mm. Um, I, one of the great privileges I had um, as mayor was um, the um, Coptic. I got invited to have dinner with the Coptic Pope, and um, what? A, and I thought there was only one Pope, but you know that was my indoctrination. 
And what a wonderful, wonderful man he was. He'd, he he was deeply, deeply, deeply interesting. Hmm. And we sat and gossiped about different people, which was great. We had the same views on quite a lot of people. And um, he said to me, how are our people going here? And I said, well, no. we often have problems at the mosque because, you know, there's a whole lot of cultures, but often they're Egyptians fighting down there. And I said, you're a scrappy lot. You like the Irish. And... Um, and I said, I often have to go down there as mayor and um, Chick Canine, the Catholic bishop, Peter Beck, the Anglican dean, Patrick O'Connor is somebody you should interview. He's a fantastic worker in the refugee and migrant community. And Pam, my wife, and I, and we go down, we take our shoes off and sit there and, and often we just diffuse things by being there. But mm. I said, it'd be quite useful if I had some of your cops telling us what the actual conversation's about. He said, leave that to me. So he, he gave this absolutely stunning talk. And um, he got to that bit and he said, I want to tell you about my best friend. My best friend is whatever his title is, the leader of the Muslims in Egypt. He said, I love him and he loves me. And we spend hour after hour after hour talking about universal spiritual truths. Hmm. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the challenge for our world. And I wanted to stand up and go, are you guys listening? <laughs> but I was picked up by a taxi driver a few weeks later um, who was a copt um, in Christchurch. And I said to him, oh, were you there? Did you hear the Holy Father? And he said, yes, yes, yes. I said, wasn't he great? He said he's far too close to the Muslims. <laughs> and that's the thing that I learnt as a kid, mm. that it wasn't only Catholics. It wasn't only Christians. It wasn't only, you know, a certain mould that we had to fit in. The world had a whole lot of different moulds. Mm. And as my life's opened up and opened up and opened up and it keeps changing every day, I keep growing in new ways those moulds seem less and less important and our universal spiritual truths and our universal ideas seem more important. Mm. So take us back then to your high school years. What interested you and what made you leave Palmy and move on, on to Christchurch? Um, my high school years, I, I hated cricket, I hated rugby, and those were the two sports that the Maris brothers understood. So I was always an outcast. Um, my my great passion, and I, this is why I always encourage a kid to have a passion about something. My great passion was vintage motor cars. Hmm. I was attracted. I loved old cars. My father was, you know, when he retired, I'd been a motor mechanic for fifty five years, and I was a petrol head. And but I, and I'm about to give a, a talk to the Vintage Car Club in a few weeks' time. It's the 75th anniversary of the club. Mm. And I'm going to talk about the different people who influenced my life through old cars, where my thinking and my maturation happened because of those relationships. And the initial relationship was old cars, 
but it was deeper than that. Yeah. And so um, I didn't fit into school at all. In fact, Dad came home from the board one time and said, Brother Morris says, if you go back to school next year, he'll make you head prefect. And I said to Dad, well, you don't, you know I don't believe in prefects, so I'm leaving school. And that was it. I just left. Wow. And, um, uh, and I came to Christchurch because I came down here for a vintage car rally, Irishman Creek rally, uh, when I was 20. And I drove through Hagley Park. I'd, I'd never been here before. I drove through Hagley Park, and it was smoggy and foggy and cold, and I'm in my little Austin 7. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, I'm coming back here to live. And I did. Hmm. So you I knew right here. away. Drove through the city. I've had the love affair with Hagley Park ever since. Wow. Can you talk me through that moment? Because, you know, your father, all of us, if we know our fathers, they're influential, important people in our lives. So you would have been, what, 16 or 17 going into the next year? And he comes home and says you'll be head prefect. Oh, I can't remember how old I was. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I guess where I'm trying to go to here is that you stood up to him at that moment and said, mm. no, I'm not coming back. Mm. Where had that come from, or that sense of, uh, I guess, I want to use the word disobedience, rebellion, where had that come from? Um, because it sounds like you knew a path that was actually right for you that wasn't involving school and becoming what your father maybe thought would be best for you. Yes, Dad was. Dad had to go to work because his dad had been um, killed in a work gang um, in the Depression, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I think he was very proud of the fact that his boy was going to be a prefect, mm-hmm. and I didn't fit into the institution he wanted me to stay within, and so I left, mm-hmm. and I've done that all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I start things. And then when things are going fine, I leave. And I put a lot of the, um, you use the term rebellion. I don't know that I was even really thinking I was rebelling. But I um, I think there's an Irish gene. And you grow up with questioning everything. Mm. Some do. Most don't. But. I've always questioned everything. I question myself every day. <laughs> and I don't want to go into something that I don't fit. And so I didn't fit the head prefect. I wanted to go to work. Um, I got a highly paid job in an accountant's office. I got $17.77 in my hand a week for a 37 and a half hour week. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> And um, that gave me five dollars worth of petrol for my Austin Seven every week, <laughs> and and I just yeah I just moved on. I I wasn't attracted to um, hierarchy or mm. no I never have, and I've ended up in a lot of top jobs, mm-hmm. but I it doesn't mean much to me. Right? Yeah. It it's just. It, to unpack it is interesting because your father's the you know the head of the school board. He comes home and says, "This is an amazing opportunity for you, son. You you can be the head prefect," and yet you 
chose a different path. And mm. I think as we're talking, this is probably going to echo through your life. So mm. it's just good to understand, I guess. Mm. As mm. We That's go. a good question. Yeah. So what happened next? Um, you started working, obviously, in the accounting firm? Yeah, I, I worked for two accounting firms. And in fact, it was quite interesting because one accounting firm that the old partner, Mr. McC- Mr. Coombs, he, um, he pulled me in one day and he said, now listen here, laddie, I want to give you a lecture while you're here because he said, I think well after I'm dead, you'll be something. Can't tell you why, you don't know either. Really? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, he's, and I said, oh, what, okay, Mr. Coombs, what is it? He said, we, we rise and we fall on our ethics. End of lecture. Hmm. And I've told that story in a thousand speeches. <laughs> well, that's probably exaggerated, but I <laughs> often talk, I use that, we rise and we fall on our ethics. And... Um, I've never forgotten that. And I so I went on to another accounting firm, which is now called EY, and um, and then I transferred to Christchurch from that, and um, to Christchurch from within EY, and then uh, left them. And um, I and and so for instance, I left EY because I couldn't. First of all, I don't I don't like. I've, I'm hopeless at detail, so it's not natural for an accountant, even though I ended up doing some really interesting accounting work after that. But the, it struck me that the people that were the richest were the ones that put the most effort into avoiding tax. Mm. And I I guess my Catholic gene says we all pay tax, mm. you know, and um, and that's for the greater good. And so... Eventually, I left, and I was liberated. And um, yeah, so mm. and it's interesting, I guess, the time period that we're talking about as well, isn't it? Because this is like early seventies, is it? Mm, or nineteen seventy. Um, so I started work in sixty nine, mm-hmm. and I worked in accountants through to seventy three or four. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's just as we're talking, I'm thinking about that era as well, because there's a lot of change going on mm. in society itself. Mm. If you think, I mean, the the classic example is sort of the Woodstock and, you know, like people gathering in these large ways, young people, you know, and and wearing different things. And, and it was an era of very much change around the world, wasn't it? Yes, it was. You've sort of reminded me of something because um, there was a big North Island music festival um, in the 70s. And I remember driving past it in my Austin 7. I never stopped hmm. because I was always... Um, I, did, I didn't ever go along with the pack, hmm. just as I hadn't at school. And I thought, oh, that might be interesting, but it wasn't what I was into. Mm. And I was into a journey of thinking, and I, I was a, you know, a big fan of James K. Baxter and um, and his poetry. And we had a priest in our area called Jim Kebble, who um, was a fantastic intellectual. And I loved. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about ideas. I was thinking mm. about values. I was thinking about social justice. And I drove past the music festival mm. where most people would have stopped. Mm. I didn't. Mm. 
But in a way, that's consistent with the story we've heard so far, isn't mm. it? It's, uh, you weren't taking the path <laughs> that others were. No. Yeah. Yeah. So talk us through a little bit more, you know, what happened next? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I decided um, I was always what could be described as a, um, a lazy student. I only ever did as much work as I had to. And I always saw if I'd got more than 50%, I'd wasted some of my social life. And so I had a few <laughs> subjects that I had to finish off. Yeah. So I went fruit picking for a while and then um, went back and and studied at tech full-time for a year. Mm -hmm. uh, in that time, I got involved in student politics, and I then became national president of the Tech Students Association. And then when I finished that, um, John Herkus, who was the, the brilliant, brilliant um, director of Christchurch Technical Institute, as it was then, later became Christchurch Polytech, said, what are you going to do next? And when I finished, I said, no, I might go and work in a bar or something. I sort of, I've only ever done what looked like it was interesting next. <laughs> and um, he said, what say I make you tech's first accountant? <laughs> and I went, well, okay. So I worked there for seven and a half years, uh -huh. uh, whilst still being actively involved in all sorts of social justice and parishes and um, joined the Labour Party. Um, and um, after I'd finished in student politics. And um, and it was quite interesting. When I when Phil Amos lost his seat in 1975 election, he called me in and he said, I don't care which political party you get involved in, just get involved in politics. Hmm. And when I finished as president... Les Gander, the then minister, the national minister of education, asked me to go and see him. And I went and saw him and he gave me the same message. Don't mm. care which party it is, get involved in politics. Mm. Which I'd really not thought about. And so, um, and then Muldoon, um, Muldoon killed the Labour superannuation scheme and I was pathologically angry about it. Mm. And joined the Labour Party, and um, and gosh, think where our super funds would be if if he hadn't done that. A generation wrote the next one off, mm. and um, so I I got involved in activism. Um, I was involved in lots of vintage car things, um, and I just lived the life of a young person. Um, mm. It's interesting to me, what I'm hearing as well, though, is that certain people have spoken into your life at yeah. moments, you know, because yeah. you were talking about your first job when the person called you into the office and said, yeah. I'm going to give you this lecture. You know, I see something and I don't know what it's going to be, but I see something here. And yeah. then those other two people. And um, I, I'm just highlighting this because I think it's important for us as well mm. to speak into the lives of young people. Mm. And, and too often we just let it, let it go by. You know, we don't mm. see the potential or maybe we see the potential, but we don't take that moment to actually take them aside and say, you can do great things. I've done that all my life and I, I've never forgotten Mr. Coombs. Mm. And there are two stories I'll tell in this area. One, one, um, uh, there was a it seemed to be the 20th anniversary of the Tampa coming here to New Zealand 
and I had the privilege of making them uh, New Zealand citizens. Um, and um, there was one little boy, he was nine, and he was this little, I said to Pam, this kid is a leader, and I'm going to take an interest in him. So I, um, I've kept a, you know, through intermediaries, kept a, uh, an interest in him, and we became friends, him and his family and me, and Pam. And that kid is sitting in an MIQ facility in Auckland at the moment. Uh, he's out in four days. He sent me a text this morning. He's just finished a master's degree on a Fulbright scholarship uh, in New York, uh, no, Washington, and he is has just written a book about his life, and um, that's the sort of thing that come... I've been one of his mentors, mm. but um, you get in behind people potential and you encourage it to happen mm. and you know that's what the coach of a school soccer team does or you know netball team or whatever that they see the potential in somebody and they encourage it mm-hmm. and um, in crucial times in his life when he's had to make a decision he sat down with me and said well I can do this or I can do that or will you be a referee for this or referee mm-hmm. for that mm. and um, we can all do that Mm. It's not hard. Mm. Now, the other person was a friend of mine. I, I became lifelong friends with him. Uh, I was on a vintage car rally, and we, uh, in 1972, and I, my mother had done everything for me. I didn't even know how to boil water, really. But um, <laughs> So we're, we're on this run, and we're staying in a camping ground. This guy's from Australia. Eric Milkins was his name. And... Um, they provided me with breakfast every morning. And one morning I didn't go to breakfast and they came looking for me. And he said, why aren't you at breakfast? And I said, look, I feel I'm a bludger. You know, I'm sucking out of you. I I can't, I don't know how to handle it. And he said, look, at this stage in your life, we've got the food and you haven't. Hmm. And I'd like to think that when you've got food, you'll feed others. And I've, Pam, Pam says that I've become so obsessed with that. She, When she's got four little kids and Gary rings up from work and says, I've got three people coming for a meal, you know. And she, <laughs> Pam talks about that a lot. And we just feed thousands of people, literally. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, I just learned from that one man mm. and wife. Yeah. Eric and Marion, yeah. who stayed friends with me till they both died. Wow. What a great lesson for all of us. Mm. <laughs> and that's really sort of that manaki tanga, yeah, isn't it? Like absolutely. welcoming, come, absolutely. you need a place, come and stay, or yep. whatever it is. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, this is turning the conversation slightly, but you mentioned that your wedding, that your mother didn't come. Can mm. you talk us through, yeah, the, the relationship with Pam? And I'm just curious... What happened there? Um, my mother, my mother was a very difficult woman, and um, putting a very kind interpretation on it. And um, she, she had, um, 
we we had major differences of opinion mm. all of our life, all of my life, and um, and I always would let her go to a certain point, and then um, I wouldn't go any further. Mm-hmm. And um, mum um, mum said to me, I said to her, uh, Pam and I are going to get married. And um, she said, no, you're not. Mm. And I went, what do you mean, no, I'm not? And she said, no, you're not. And I said, um, Mum, I'm, I think I was 25 at the time. <laughs> I said, Mum, um, I'm not marrying you, I'm marrying Pam. And she said, well, if you marry her, I'm not coming. And I said, your call, not mine. And I went and packed my bag and I walked out of Palmerston North, caught the bus to Wellington and flew home. Hmm. And um, and mum was like that all my life. Hmm. And um, uh, I remember when um, I was, uh, when I, second time I stood for the mayoralty hmm. and... Um, I just found out that I'd won again, and I thought, well, I'll ring Mum and tell her. And um, I rang her up, and I said, oh, Mum, I've won again. And she said, oh, I'm sorry about that. And I said, what do you mean you're sorry? <laughs> and she said, oh, I really like that Mr. Bellani on the radio. <laughs> and I thought, why do I bother ringing? <laughs> and and that was the sort of – we had a very – yeah. Difficult relationship, and it was it was quite interesting because um, eventually uh, Mum got dementia, and um, we shifted her from Palmerston North, and there was all sorts of I can I don't need to bore you with some terrible family feuds that happened, um, and we managed to shift Mum to a catholic home in wellington she'd always said she wanted to die in wellington she'd love where she lived part of her life in wellington and loved the place so we found her a place in the vincentian home in wellington mm. and um and that was easier for us to fly up so there'd be one or two of us every month we'd fly up and um so about three weeks before she died Pam was up there visiting her and she'd spent three days and she'd thrown out old clothes and mm-hmm. bought new ones and sewn labels and all that sort of thing. And um, she said, um, Pat, I'm going back to Christchurch. And Mum said to her, Christchurch? She said, do you know Pam Sharp? And Pam said, I am Pam Sharp. She said, never had any time for that girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it was just... You know, uh, you either buy into that, yeah. or you say that's your issue, not yeah. mine. Yeah, and and I guess to a certain extent, when people wonder why I'm so calm in the middle of a scrap, it's how I grew up. Yeah, um, at home, if you had to, if you believed in something, you had to be prepared to fight for it. Right. If Mum disagreed with it, that was that. Right. Whereas my father was a very calm man and a very much loved man actually and um and he um he was very generous in his approach to things mm. and um and we got on like a house on fire but but mum was absolutely typical irish mammy mm. 
So mm. her her whole fucker papa was Irish. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's interesting. Just even as you're talking, the contrast between her and the other people that you've already described. You know, the ones who fed into you and encouraged you and said, you know, eat our food and one day share with others. Like it's such such powerful images there. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, I had a, a, a friend of mine, um, uh, Bob Beardsley, was a. Um, a very, very good friend. And his mum, Connie Beardsley, was an absolutely fascinating woman. I'd never met anyone like it. Like, she was a communist. Um, she had started the, um, or been actively involved in um, the Housewives Union uh, in the 1930s. Um, they'd threatened to lie in front of trams so they could get hooks on public transport, the first in the world. Hmm. And Connie and I spent hour after hour after hour debating. Hmm. And she was into opera and she was into the arts and she was into environmentalism and all these things. And I learned a huge amount from Connie Beardsley hmm. and and her family and Bob. And I remember Bob and I'd be working in the workshop on something and and he always had the concert program on his rattly old radio that he had. And he'd say, do you know what this is? And I'd say, no. He said, it's Johann Sebastian Mighty Bach. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was just... And so I, I learned other things from them. I learned to look up at the hills. I learned to, um, to listen to those who had a very different background from my own. Um, and And that whole sort of liberal thinking you know and it tied into a lot of that theology of liberation stuff mm. and um so connie sort of considered religion the opiate of the people and all that sort of thing and 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 we had all those huge great debates which was just really healthy way of mm. living mm. um and we'd listen to dylan thomas and they had a four-sided um lp on under milkwood and all that sort of stuff and I just learned so much from those people and I'll be eternally grateful. And I took a lot out of them without giving a lot back. But what I learned, what I did, and I, I, I needed to be a sort of maturing of my ideas. The more the ideas matured, the more I fed back into other people. So mm. they gifted their time and ideas to me. And I later fed it back mm. to others. Mm. And, and it might be a completely different scenario or a different scene. Yeah. But it's that, um, you know, maybe they wouldn't have seen what would come later, but they were willing to feed into you at that point. And then you yourself then can feed into other people and the cycle can can go on the danger at the moment i think is because of the rise of technology and you know sitting behind screens very often we become disconnected with each other mm. and we don't actually engage in those debates we don't make space to actually get together and you know we're going to have lunch after this we're going to be able to chat and you know have a discussion but how often are we marooned behind a screen 
clicking, 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 mm. and and things are coming up that we already agree with, mm. you know, and it, it's that danger, isn't it? Mm. You have to have that ability to connect, and mm. that's what I'm a little bit worried about in the future. Oh, I'm more than a little bit worried about it, but I, I um, you, you know, that, that dinner the other night that you and I were both at, you know, mm. um, I was fascinated how people were listening. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, I, you know, people were just hanging on to what I was saying and I thought that's really life you know that's um Mm. um I I I do I do feel that um I I had a mate of mine sent me a um a link to a book and it said we must talk to strangers and he he said when did when did we last talk to strangers? And mm. I replied to him yesterday afternoon. Mm. And um, I do it all the time. And yeah. if we engage with each other, we learn from each other. And, you know, it's... Um, I don't know how many times in my lifetime I've said, well, that was a bloody good scrap. Now let's go and have a beer. Mm. And I, I've, got a, I've got a story about um, Carol Evans, who became uh, my deputy uh, mayor uh, a terrific woman and during the election campaign with Bellani she had said um, uh, Gary Moore's the worst mayor I've ever come across so I didn't reply to that and and uh, so after the election I rang I contacted her and said look I'd like to talk to you and I um, I said to her look I I'm bloody appalled at what you said, and you know you were <laughs> wrong here, and you're wrong here, and you're wrong. And she burst into tears. Now, that tears was something my mother used to use to actually get her own way. And that, and I just Pam can see it happening. This sort of this black heart goes clonk. I don't even <laughs> not listening from that point. And um, and I said, well, look, I'm, this is what I think, you know. Mm. So anyway. Three years later, I contacted her and said, could you come in and see me? And she did. And I said, I'd really like to see you become my deputy mayor. And she burst into tears and she said, I thought you hated my guts. (laughs) And I said, why? And she said, oh, because you told me off after the last election. The poor woman had spent three years thinking I hated her guts. And all I was doing was telling her what I thought. And then it was over. Uh-huh. And I think that's a really important thing too. You must agree to disagree and stay friends. Mm. And it's something that the left does very, very badly. Um, they, they, God, they bring up all sorts of nonsense forever. But um, and and we, she was a a superb deputy mayor, mm. and we were the best of mates. But just because I said I, I just believe you need to tell people I'm not happy with that mm. or this is what we should be doing and debate it mm. and I learned all that off the Connies and the Rob Shand the founder of the Vintage Car Club he was a scrappy bugger too and and him and I'd spend hour after hour after hour fighting and in 1981 he banned the Vintage Car Club. This is the founder of the club. Right. Banned the Vintage Car Club from staying on his farm because three of us who were coming had been arrested during the Springbok tour. So 
I, um, they got an agreement that if we didn't come, the club, the thing could still happen. Mm-hmm. And I dropped out of the club for three years. And um, and then one day they, the Shans rang up and said, we haven't seen you for years. What, why haven't you been in touch with us? Right. And so we, Pam and I and the kids, went down and stayed the following weekend on the farm. And it was as if nothing had happened. You know, we he'd moved on, I'd moved on. Right. And we just carried on the best of mates. Hmm. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm sure the people listening hopefully are absorbing that because I think this is the problem sometimes is that there's a debate or a conversation and people get offended and and never talk to that person again. But actually constructive debate is important and the willingness to to have a beer at the end of it, right? Well, the other thing too is important to actually change Mm. because I've always felt in the in the middle of a big fight, like there'll be different people with different ideas, and in the middle of it is the solution. And you've got to be prepared to change. Mm. Now, sometimes you can't change. You know, you've said, no, this is what we're going to do. And, and uh, like the council at the moment on their arena, I think they've made the right call. And I think the people that are doing the other thing are being stupid. But I just remember so many times where I was in the middle of a debate and you could see right in the middle there there's the answer right but you have to have the debate mm. and um no, there's not enough of that computers stop that mm. yeah no that's good yeah i had a comment on linkedin the other day from a listener which i love when listeners leave comments about mm. the show and it was basically saying, I really like Seed's podcast because it exposes me to people that I wouldn't meet otherwise. Mm. And it was basically, you know, different perspectives, mm. hearing somebody else's life story. And mm. Yeah, I think we need more and more mm. of that and platforms and ways that we can do that. So I'm curious about politics. We kind of skirted around it and things. But at what point did you think, I actually want to run for an office? Just talk us through that and then the decision to run for mayor, like, how did that come about? Um, I've always been interested in politics. I joined the Social Credit League when I was 15 at school. Um, And I still believe social credit's a good idea. And um, I, as I said, Muldoon caused me to sort of get involved in the Labour Party. And I was just a party hack. I chaired electorate committees and I was on the regional council for the Labour Party and um, I was just an activist really Mm. and I did all sorts of things like that. And then Helen Clark appointed me to the Area Health Board and we did some amazing things there. Don Bevan was the chairman of the board and it was just terrific and I've, I've been friends with a number of them like Karen Gilliland and Sid Bradley and people like that ever since and Don. Don used to turn up in my office when I was mayor and he'd go, Oh Gary, you know, da 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 he's a great old bugger and and um and I'd go, How much is this gonna cost me, Don? That's always raising money for yet another <laughs> worthy course. But anyway, um I then we were sacked by Ruth Richardson in the mother of all budgets and um I then was approached by the Labour Party to stand for 
the council. And I went, nah, I'm not interested in public life. And I'm just a party hack. And, uh, and there's a lot of party hacks, a lot of people that, you know, door knock and post pamphlets and all that for all the political parties. And I was just one of them. And um, the fourth time um, I was approached, I went to one of my mentors that I had started a credit union with, Alan Dingwall of Dingwall and Porter. And Alan was one of these old Methodists who had been, he was an old lefty, had been a very successful businessman. And he was involved in the WEA and all that. And I'd been involved in WEA and run WEA summer schools and all that sort of stuff. And I went to him and I said, look, I've run out of excuses why I shouldn't stand for the council. What do you think? And he said, I think you'd be excellent but I want you to make one promise to me. He said, politicians are, and this was an earlier era, um, pre-COVID, uh, pre-Google and all these others, he said, politicians are often in a position where they've got information the public doesn't uh, have. And the essential role of a politician is as an educator. You have to educate people on issues. And if you promise that you will remain an educator, I'll endorse your standing. And he did. Hmm. He nominated me for the to stand for the council. And so I was given a seat um, that the Labour Party didn't expect to um, win, and they said this will give you a chance to um, try out. Hmm. Um, I am unbelievably competitive, really, really <laughs> competitive if it really comes to the crunch. If somebody says I can't do something, that's my mother again. Right, right. there's the challenge. That's the challenge. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. So I topped the poll in that ward and removed the chairman of the Citizens Association and I became a city councillor. Hmm. And what year was this? 1992. Okay. Um, in the next election... Um, uh, I was offered a chair of a committee and people were scrapping and fighting and they wanted to they wanted to be the chair and and I said to the people that were deciding, I don't care if I'm chair, I'm still gonna be doing I'm an activist, I'll do what I want to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And um they went, No, 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 you're gonna be the chair and so I enjoyed that, and then Vicky Buck announced she was standing down, and I thought, wonder who's going to take a place. And we had been involved in, a group of us had been involved in trying to broaden the Labour Party locally, and I don't believe in central government politics and local government. Uh, I believe you should be looking for a a broad coalition and we created one and we called it Christchurch 2021 Hmm. and we had a vision for the year 2021 and um, so we'd created this much to the disgust of the Labour MPs who use local government and don't support it if it suits them and expect the local government people to fall in line with them they will. They've done it. They'll do it today. They did it then. It was just the way things were. Hmm. You just have to accept that. And it's pretty tough. I've uh, seen the Labour Party in Christchurch then and now. 
And so um, I got the nomination for 2021 and stood for mayor and and won. Hmm. And I won three times. That's great. And what year was this then? 19... So 1998 to 2007. Right. And before we talk about that, I'm just curious what the agenda was for 2021 since we're talking now in 2021. Uh, it, it was... It actually influenced the um, direction of the council um, for years. Mm. Um, we were looking at um, getting rid of dumps. Um, we, On the back of that, we um, talked the councils of Canterbury into sharing one dump. So we went from 50-something dumps to Timaru has a dump, and we have one in Cape Valley. Uh, we got into recycling, we got into um, a lot of environmental issues. Um, we didn't we haven't achieved everything that 2021 set out to do, but it was a pretty broad spectrum mm. uh, grouping and it was about a vision mm. and we could do with that again. Mm. So what were some of the highlights of that time? as the mayor here, I have an accent, but I actually grew up in Christchurch. So we moved here in 1989. So at that time, I was a student at University of Canterbury, um, because I studied there from 95 to 2001. Um, But yeah, just some highlights from your memories of of being the mayor of Christchurch. Um, I, one of the things that to me was important was, I hated the your worship and the, you know, all the mm. sycophantic nonsense that goes with it. And so... Just on that, what is the official title? How, how should people... Your if, worship. If it's your worship. Mm. <laughs> or Mr. Mayor. Yeah. But I, I, I never buy into any of that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, cut the, I got the fur cut off the mayoral gowns and made it into a red and black gown and all that. So they got a Māori weaver to weave... A motive into the into the uh, thing. It was, it was good, um, but I I I I was getting a little concerned that um, I was. It's in the interests of bureaucracies to actually hold you um, within their gamut, and so. Um, I announced that I was going to um, sit in the square every Friday and anyone could come and see me. <laughs> and I arrived in my office one day and there were about 10 or 12 people there and um, I thought, oh, I can't remember what's this meeting about. Anyway, I went in and it was the city manager and a whole lot of the staff, senior staff, and they were saying, Mr Mayor, we're, you're putting yourself at risk um, sitting in the square. And I went, Why? And they said, well, um, you know, anything could happen. I said, listen, I walk the streets, I drink in public bars, people know me, I go everywhere on my own, why is this different? And they said, well, you know, it went back and forth, back and forth. And in the finish, the city manager said, well, um, Mr Mayor, if you want to do this, we're not supporting you. And I went, this doesn't worry me. (laughs) So... I um, uh, I rang the press and I said, you might like to take a picture of me um, tomorrow when I go into the square. Well, there were 15 people in a line waiting to talk to me and I was taking my own notes. And the next week the city manager came in and said, well, maybe you were right. So I made 
each of the executive team in turn take the notes as punishment for <laughs> <laughs> and um and then we and then they said right well now we've all done this who do you want there and i'd got the chairman of the union because i sort of figured bill purdy would know everyone and he did and so we'd go into the square at lunchtime we'd He'd go back and he'd say, the mayor's, you know, uh, Stephen Moe's been to see the mayor today and he wants an answer by four o'clock. Right. <laughs> and um, and so, and Bill and I did that till I retired. Hmm. In fact, I spoke at his funeral. Right. And we'd often go at five o'clock at Tawana's pub and Bill and I'd drink together and people hmm. knew they could see me there too. Hmm. And um, so that, that was a special thing. Um, I was challenged by um, a guy, Vivian Hutchison, to do set a social goal for local government. So I called a group of mayors together, about six or seven of us, can't remember who they all were now, um, and from all sorts of different political persuasions, mm -hmm. and said, let's set a social goal. Let's set zero waste of New Zealanders under the age of 25. And we... And we and it grew and it grew and it grew to the point where there are only two mayors in New Zealand that didn't join, hmm. and it's still going. And we were and in Christchurch we were aiming, um, we were aiming at um, uh, we'd got up to everyone under the age of nineteen. We knew there were sixty something of them, and we knew every single one of them, and we knew why they weren't working. And we we're working on that, and we were heading towards the twenty-five. When I left, Bob Parker didn't see it as any use mm. to him, and he sort of dropped it really. But um, but uh, again, there's that sort of social justice stuff. Mm. I had close connections into the Maori community, into the Pacific Island community. I had dear, dear special relationship with Reverend Lapana Faditolu, who was the minister at um, uh, Presbyterian minister at St. Pauls, I think it was, and um, strong links into refugee and migrant communities. Um, uh, Mark Solomon and I started the Intercultural Assembly, mm. where we, it was like the United Nations, um, where uh, we took turns at chairing it, and then we handed the chairing over to um, uh, over to the uh, that community, and then Mark and I would come in. As as is required was mm. required. Um, we kept our assets. The business round table put a lot of effort into lobbying us. I remember one um, meal one night where uh, there's Ruth Richardson and Peter Townsend and all the worthies round town are all sitting there, and there was a Catholic nun out from America. She had an eye patch, <laughs> and she was unbelievably right-wing. And I sat there all night. Um, I didn't say anything. And then in the finish, I got sick of it. I thought, I'm going to go home. So I thought, well, I'll make my points on the way out. So I, I turned, I said, I've got to go now. And um, I turned to this nun and I said, Sister Connie, you're obviously a good Catholic and I'm a bad Catholic because you're in the institution, I'm not. But I said, I reckon you're about as far away from Catholic theology as you could get. <laughs> and in my understanding of the Gospels. And then I turned to the others and I think, I said, if you think I go along with 
the nonsense that's been talked about tonight and I'm going to leave the poor lying on the corner of the road, you got me wrong. I totally disagree with everything that's been said here tonight. And I left and I was never invited back to their functions for some reason. <laughs> and but we and we all you know, we kept our assets. I'm very proud of the fact that in my time we invested in Enable, which is now worth six hundred million. Um, we did all sorts of interesting things um, from a social perspective. Um, we built we built a good stadium, which could have been saved if the council had listened to Ian Athfield, who designed it. Um, we did, um, you know, the libraries expanded the, mm. you know, the kids' access to sports expanded the. Mm. We did. We 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 did a total review of all of our water services, and um, and invested properly in in roading and all those things, mm. and uh, and still had the lowest rates in New Zealand, and that was because we kept our assets, mm. we kept that special revenue. Mm. It's interesting to think about a role like that because you do you end up coming into contact with so many different parts of the community and so many of the things that we just take for granted, you know, like stormwater or roads or you know, like it's it just happens. Mm. Who who actually does that? Well, mm. somebody has to look after these things, and yes. I think people can forget that sometimes. I used to always pride myself if somebody come to me if they came to me with an issue, mm. I'd. Um, I'd say I only need to make one phone call and I'll give you an answer. Hmm. And that's because a good mayor's networked hmm. and they have to walk in the shoes of ordinary people and extraordinary people. Hmm. Um, and you have to engage with economic development and social justice. Hmm. You have to engage, uh, get councillors to caucus around an issue at the council table rather than taking political perspectives. Mm. Now, it is political, I accept that. But you've got to actually... You're, you're, the, you're the person with the big picture. Mm. You're the person that actually leads things. Like, I left the council, and I think in terms of 50 to 100 years. Mm. Um, and I've... Yeah, and I still do. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So tell us a little bit about what you're involved in today. Um, I personally know about the Tuesday Club, and you know that's been going for a number of years now. Um, do you want to just talk us through that maybe, and, and what is it that's keeping you active and, and busy? Oh, um, I, don't, I don't want to sort of ossify in the corner, really. <laughs> um, I... I um, we started the Tuesday Club because we were fed up with Jerry Brownlee telling us what to do and what to think. Mm-hmm. And so three of us started it, Peter Beck, the dean, uh, John Patterson, who had worked with me in economic development, who would also be a very good person for you to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, three of us started it in our bar, our family-owned Smash Palace. And so we, um, and we decided we'd just get people to talk about Public policy, mm. mostly, mm-hmm. that's what it is. And um, so I started writing, and I'd never written in my life. And I started writing a newsletter, and and then a woman came along called Rosemary Neve, and Rosemary said, I reckon we could clean up the way you 
present things, which is no great challenge, actually. It was so awful. <laughs> and so Rosemary and I essentially run the Tuesday Club now. Yeah. And we just play with public policy. Mm. At the moment, we are um, focusing on water. I think the government's got water badly, badly wrong. And um, in a few weeks' time, um, the... Um, we were having a public meeting on water mm. um, at the Aldersgate Centre, mm. and we we're bringing um, a um, the uh, chairman of the um, infrastructure committee at Dunedin City Council's coming up, um, and the deputy mayor of Invercargill's hoping to as well. Mm. So we'll we'll people need to know about water. Mm. Uh, so we're doing that. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like you have sort of themes that come through because you've also done quite a bit about community housing yep. and social housing and, yep. and had speakers come in. And um, Peter Beck, who you mentioned, he's been on the podcast before mm. and I got to know him. And I think at the time you were away, you were in Europe, but I came and shared about purpose, profit, new ways of conceiving business, oh, yes, yes. all of that type of yes. thing, um, which I do, that's sort of, one of the areas I talk a lot about. Um, yeah, so it's interesting to watch it develop. And now yes, yes. and now you've got the newsletter with a number of people who receive this every week, right? Yeah, um, it's between 13 and 1,400 now. Mm. And a number don't read it. Mm. Um, some come in and out at different times. They've got different topics. But we have a topic, you know, um, that um, next week we've got a couple of researchers talk, who've talked to young women and their experience of work, of being impacted by COVID. Mm. Um, people will turn up I've never seen before. Yeah. So we just... Just roll with it. Just Welcome. roll with it. And it's kind of consistent with the theme of what we've been talking about, you know, even as a young person, having the conversation, the dialogue, hearing different perspectives. So mm. it's natural that it would outwork and in this way at this yep. stage yeah it's great and we we have people that are there every week and we have people that pop in and out and different topics attract different size crowds but mm -hmm. but uh, but rosemary's also putting it up on facebook now mm. and a uh, lot watch that but yeah. we we had uh, at the one time with the um uh with the health reforms we had when the district health board turned on their executive which really depressed me it was terrible stuff and um we had something like i look i don't know the numbers whether how what they mean or anything but there were three and a half thousand um views of some nature it, yeah. it really became quite um an effective tool for the staff who were distressed as well mm. um and uh, so so I'm involved in that, um, and I'm constantly thinking about what's a public policy issue, and I just write about what mm. attracts me, really. Yeah, and you mentioned before the event that we were both at, you were speaking about social housing, community housing, and different initiatives that you'd seen. Um, and I think there was about 180 people who came to that. Mm. That was at Oxford Terrace Baptist Church. Um, is that... Because I know Pam's very involved in that mm. as well. Is that something that you're also doing work in? Or um, yep. Yeah. Uh, um, when I finished um, 
the mayoralty, I, I went through a tough time. I'd I'd um, I'd spent time with uh, Gilbert Anoka from who's the the mind manager of many of the All Blacks, and I tried to get my head into the right space before I left, but I didn't, and I found. I, I got into a very low spot, first time in my life really, and um, uh, I suffered depression for the first time in my life that I discovered who were fair weather, fair weather friends and who weren't. Mm. And um, I was lonely and I'd been working 90 to 120 hours booked every week and, mm. and I was burnt out basically. Yeah. And it took me a while to sort of find my feet again um, uh, and and I I think Peter Beck said to me, um, uh, "Your mojo's back," and 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 it was uh, eventually. But um, Pam and I made a decision that we had one big project left in us, and we see a big project as twenty to twenty five years, and that was housing. And Pam's really she's worked at it as a district nurse. She's seen people in their homes. She's seen poverty and injustice and so forth. Um, and so we both decided we'd get involved in um, housing. So I um, ended up shifting houses out of the red zone uh, and trying to get um, affordable housing for people. Uh, I did it on my own. I was doing quite well financially out of it, but I hate working on my own. So got turned into a trust, and so we, I don't know, we shifted 40 or 50 houses or something. And um, and that got me involved in housing. Mm-hmm. And I then went on to the New Zealand Council of Community Housing Aotearoa. And um, at the same time, Pam was, um, she was, she worked with a, um, I think it was a Baptist group that was an inter-church group that actually was working at building houses in, mm. um, oh, Hornby, can't remember the little street name anyway um so she was there um she was on the methodist mission she now chairs the methodist mission and mm. it's real big focus on housing and jill hawkey there is fantastic yeah and, and she, that hornby initiative that was housing plus i think wasn't it oh there's a whole stack of them were okay. involved in it. it's, yeah, it's yeah. that place though yeah 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 um and then the last um thing pam's involved in um uh, Otatahi Community Housing Trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's deputy chair of that. In fact, right now she's in a board meeting by Zoom from Whanganui. Um, and um, so we're both actively involved in that. And Pam's very driven by the Otago 40-year study and all that sort of important stuff. Right. And um, so there's the sort of the mother, the grandmother, the district nurse, the activist, um, and she's she's really good at it. Um, and after I'd left the community housing um, board, um, I was approached um, within community house uh, within um, Ministry of Housing and Urban Development to see if I could pull together the the sort of community housing groups to get them to think strategically. And because I'm not involved in any particular group now, mm-hmm. um, that's quite easy. And um, so I work um, w- with that, and it's a really um, 
rewarding thing. Mm. Um, we uh, we had a, a master class a few weeks ago. Uh, we had um, uh, Shamabil Yakov. Uh, we had Sam Stubbs mm-hmm. from um, Simplicity. Simplicity. Yeah. Um, we had um, who was there from uh, James um, was there from um, Community Finance. Mm-hmm. James Palmer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a guy from the ANZ, and I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. And we basically we were trying to get them to talk about finance and. What do we have to focus on and what do we have to do? Mm-hmm. Because a few months before, um, uh, I had, I'd rung a mate of mine and said, do you, do you have Adrian Orr's phone number? Mm. And he said, yep. I said, can I have it, please? And he sent it to me. And I rang Adrian Orr one Sunday night and I said, how would you like to talk to the CEO and sector leaders for him? And he did. He was terrific, absolutely mm. fantastic man. And and so we we're, we're looking at place based um, mm. growth, uh, how you plan at a local level, the special qualities of um, of what community housing does, and that's driven by an amazing woman uh, in South Auckland, Pacific Island woman yeah. who's working in the Pacific Island community, mm. and so it's basically raising mm. raising their their eyes. Yeah. Um, it's too easy for community housing providers to become um, victims of their own customers. Mm. They see people who desperately need housing. They see people who are suffering, and they are um, they 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 sort of look downwards rather than looking upwards. Mm instead of thinking strategically and that's what we do in the CEO forum and it's to work alongside Kainga Ora, uh, working alongside Ministry of Housing and Urban Development mm. and it's working alongside the government and saying we've, we're in this together. Housing is a crisis and we actually have to do this together and mm. so I use whatever skills I've got to play my part. Yeah, oh that's great it's a real, um, sounds like collaboration would be a theme word that you're trying to bring people together. I'm a little bit involved as um, with community finance, yes. which you know about, which is trying to get access to finances, to mm. the to the money, mm. to build the housing. So mm. yeah, it's been, um, it's a fascinating area to watch grow mm. and develop. Mm. And there's such a need, we, we've got to do something. So mm. yeah, that's really great. Well, and it's, it's, it's getting in behind the Chris Chamberlains, you know, it's, mm. It's there are there are people around New Zealand whose passion is actually getting people into their own homes. Yeah, and um, I you know the way I explain it is my mum and dad came back from the war. They'd had nothing but distress really in their lives mm-hmm. to that point, and the government said to the to our mums, you can capitalise your family benefit and that's a deposit for a house. And m- bearing in mind that most women didn't work, mm. um, and and they were full-time mums at home, mm-hmm. uh, or you could get a 3% loan to go into a, super, a subdivision that was approved by the government, mm-hmm. um, or um, you could go into a state house. And... We've got away from that, and this, I mean, I could do a talk all day on the 
dangers and the and the the way our economy and our society's been wrecked by neoliberal economics. Mm. Neoliberal economics stopped all that. And what we've got in place now is like accommodation supplement, which was brought in by, I think, Ruth Richardson. And all that's done is prop up a private rental sector mm. and and propped up more and more and more and more people who are then dependent on that accommodation supplement. Mm. And we really need to start thinking about how can we capitalise some of that accommodation supplement so that that gives people a deposit for a house. Mm. And it's that sort of thinking that I'm I'm interested in. That's where the public policy's wrong. Yeah. And and there are really good thinkers out there. One of my favourite thinkers is a woman by the name of Kay Seville-Smith, who's an incredible thinker. Shama Beale's another one. Mm. Campbell Roberts is another one. Mm. Um, where you've got these people that are deep thinkers, mm. and they are... They need to be honoured and respected and listened to. Yeah. Well, that's the challenge, isn't it? To look, if, if we have a whiteboard, how would we design it? And, yep. and what could we do different? I'm really lucky with community finance because we have both Shamobile and Campbell on the board. Yes. So there's so much wisdom in the room when, mm. when, when they're there. It's mm. wonderful. Mm. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little bit hungry now. Yep. So I think what we should do is finish up um, because the park ranger is next door and they've got some great food. <laughs> so um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a meandering conversation talking through your life. And I can't think of the number of topics that we've touched on, but the things that really stood out to me actually was some of those personal stories about where people have inputted into your life and, you know, called you to a vision of what you could be, mm. but then also that story where you felt guilty eating the food and they said, well, we have food now. One day you'll have food. Treat people the same way. Like I think there's some wisdom in there that we can all learn from. So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. And what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to the Tuesday Club and other things so people can find out more. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great fun. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gary. I know for me, there were several things that stood out, and I was reflecting on them as we were talking. But one of the key things there was the fact that those people influenced him at an early age. You know, they spoke into his life with positive encouragement. And I just love that because how often do each of us let those opportunities go by when there are young people that we could actually be speaking into their lives? So that's the takeaway and challenge from my perspective. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, and there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time.